Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Center, it sounds very huge and elevated, and that's what it feels like. Like once you're working there, because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable with, you know, issues of people being different. I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 220 for November 13th, 2008. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we've got a great show for you. we got both of our regular columnists back. Marty Cooper is going to talk about Billy Elliot, and we're also going to hear a song from the uh, London cast recording of that. And we've got Ken Davenport as well with the producer's perspective. In addition to that, we have innovative theater company, The Queen's Company, uh, which we get into a nice, interesting discussion on a... feminism and artistic choices and career choices as well. We're going to hear from the playwright of The Most Damaging Wound. We've also got award-winning Boomerang Theater Company talking about their new rep season, as well as the star and writer of the new play, Capture Now. So a lot of great stuff, as well as Top of the Trades and the Call Board. So uh, I'd say it's time we get rolling. All right, well, back in Shakespeare's time at the Old Globe, the shows were put on made of casts of one sex. And if any listeners out there don't know that, I'm going to reach out and slap you. We've got a company here in New York, the Queen's Company, that does just exactly that, performs all of Shakespeare's shows with uh, one sex. Although in this case, it's all women. And we have the artistic director of that company, Rebecca... Patterson. <laughs> Patterson. I can read the, <laughs> the name on the sheet here. And I forgot to check that before going in. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. So how long have you been artistic director for the Queen's Company? Well, we started off in 2000, so I think that makes it eight years that we've been around. And Twelfth Night is our 11th production. Wow. So what is the reaction been? And what was kind of the initial you know, inception idea of getting... Shakespeare up on, and I, I should mention too that you know we have the specific dates that you're doing a production right now of Twelfth Night mm-hmm. in this way at uh, Urban Stages. So, uh, but what was the original idea? Your thoughts behind starting this company with this concept? The original impulse was I wanted to do classical theater, and I wanted to do it in a way that really cracked it open and made it more relevant for contemporary audiences, and also really explore the theatricality and just the playfulness of these plays. So um, I kind of leapt into it and tried it with all one gender, and it was the response of the audience that sold me, and also just my own personal response um, watching it, in that I felt I was seeing the stories for the first time. And it took me a while of just seeing that it was working before I finally figured out why it was working so well. So um, the proof has kind of been in the doing of it. Uh, The audience's responses have been incredibly enthusiastic, Critics, again, have been, you know, really behind the company and have been very enthusiastic about the work. And it just continues to delight and enlighten and enchant, and that's why we keep doing it. 
given how things turned out for the Democratic Party, have you thought about switching it from all women to all black men? <laughs> well, I have to say that one of, one of the... Um, is that people really focus on the fact that it's an all-female company, but what has, what's also very important to me is um, diversity, in that um, what you see is New York City on the stage, you know, in a, in a female form, but that there's, a, there's diversity of the actors on stage, which has always been very important to me, which is opening up Shakespeare to all actors that usually, you know, have a token presence in it in the, in the past. Oh, aren't there enough women's roles in New York theater in general? I mean, <laughs> no, unfortunately, there isn't because the one of the things that um, you know my initial interest in going into this was artistic, and there's been this huge you know social political um, angle to it that's come along, which is that you know equity is fifty percent male and female, and sixty percent of the roles that are available are to men, so the women are um, underemployed. So one of the things that you know, a nice. Is it really an even split 50 50? Because it always seems to me like there's way more female actors than. <laughs> it could be. There probably are more female actors, they just period. Maybe, yeah. You're seeing what female, you know, because not but all But then they're filtered are... by the fact that there's also few roles to get to get their equity card. and. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So there's a, there's, we know from theater training programs that there's a lot more women. And there's just a lot, lot, lot more women going to theater. But um, yeah, there's fewer equity roles. So equity right there cuts it down to 50-50, but I think if you look at the actors' equity, non-equity, you would find that there's a lot more women out there as well. But I can't quote those numbers, yeah. so I won't. I won't. <laughs> you know, and the irony there, too, is, you know, women, I think, are, you know, by far, you know, there are a lot more women out there acting. There's a lot more women out there going to plays. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't think anybody disputes that, you know, women are the driving force, you know, with theater going, is that, yeah, and some gay men, you know, in there, too, and, mm -hmm. and that you know, probably half or more of the straight guys going to theater are getting dragged by the choice made. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I remember that Broadway did a, a survey about what was the average Broadway theater goer, and the profile they came up with was a middle-class white woman in her 40s. <laughs> so, yeah, it's definitely that there's a lot. There's women go, women watch theater. Well, that's definitely a lot better than my hometown. I think where the average theater goer is like, you know, white women in their 80s. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's true. It's true. <laughs> so, so what have been some of the highlights uh, as, as you've been working over the past eight years with, with your company, the Queen's Company? Mm, the highlights of, you know, for me has actually been the work itself in the rehearsal room and watching the audiences respond to the shows you know, we've done quite a mixture of plays. We've definitely focused the last little while on, on doing more Shakespeare because people definitely respond and love that. But we've done, you know, Sheridan. We've done Restoration Comedies. We've done three Afra Bens, which is most people go, Afra Ben? She was the first professional female playwright in England during the Restoration when women were just coming onto the stage in female roles, just women on the stage, period. So um, that's been, you know, the highlights is, it's been pretty constant, and that's kept me in the work and kept me going with it, is that I can't say there's one particular production that steps out of the others, and I says, oh, that's the, the premier production. It's just the consistent work of the actors on stage, and I have to say, just to the credit of the women who are stepping into these roles is quite amazing, and that, um, among many things, has sold me so solidly on the work is that we're opening up these roles to really inspired interpretations by actors who normally don't get a chance to step in and give their all and show us, you know, a different take and a different light on these characters, on these plays. So that, I have to say, is the highlight. You know, just kind of based on this whole 
thing. I, I've always found it kind of interesting, and I haven't really put a classification around it, but I, I have found it interesting that, it, you know, kind of traditionally, not that there aren't people doing either side, but that that there are always more women in acting and singing and performing that want to perform, and when it comes down to the writing and the creation, there's more males. Mm-hmm. And then not that there's just more males that are professionally hired doing it, but I really do think that there's more men that do that to begin with. You know, than, you know, not saying <laughs> always the gender wars, but not that the women don't do it. But if you ask around, I'd, I'd know a lot more men mm-hmm. that try to write. And, and yes. what and one, it's enough to me that it seems that there must be something kind of biologically ingrained well, in, a, in, a, in an average male psyche to want mm-hmm. to, you know, put pen to paper yeah. more than. Well, actually, I do. I've been thinking about that a lot, too, because, you know, beyond doing the classical work is I do direct new works. And, you know, one of my approaches to Shakespeare is I approach him like he's a living writer and it's a new work. (laughs) But um, I don't think it's, you know, one thing that I've done, I've figured out with the gender work is I don't think it's biological. It's social. We're, We're taught how to be men and women because it's been so easy for me to teach female actors who have female bodies how to move through the world as a man. So it's pretty clear to me that it's socially, you know, we're socially trained. But I do think that men um, have this sense of, of ownership and privilege in the world that it's their story. That they, there is definitely an ease when I work with male playwrights of like, oh, I've got something to say. And there's no reticence, there's no stepping back. And I find with women that they will pick up a script, they will perform somebody else's words, but there's less of a sense of, I have a story to tell. And I don't think that's biological. I think that's just a sense, that's just the legacy of, um, you know, misogyny and uh, the patriarchy. This is in the same way that, you know, why did it take us so long to get a black president? You know, it's a sense of, you know, do I have the right? And that takes a, that's a deep, that's, you know, deeply ingrained of, is, is my story important to tell? And I think that what's happening now is people are feeling empowered to tell their stories. Um, And I do think, you know, it's two things that, um, you know, all I can really address is really encourage women to step forward and and speak, and speak loud and tell their stories. And also encourage um, our artistic leadership to give a place for those voices. I think there's two things, is that a a woman writes a play, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really get as much opportunity, as much exposure, so it kind of feeds into that feeling of my stories aren't important. They go to the theater and they see in a lineup of six plays being presented by a theater company, there's one woman, or if one. So I think it's the two things have to feed together. It's one thing i Based on that, when you, you, see, you said you work with original material, when you put out a call for mm-hmm. material, and I don't, assuming you don't put out a call saying female playwrights wanted, mm-hmm. what kind of ratio do you get you know, as in submissions. Well, for me as a as a freelance director, I don't get submissions. You know, I'm okay. I'm tagged. I'm either you know I'm um, I'm approached by a theater or by a playwright who says you know I really like your work. I'd like I think this is a good match for you. So I think that um, unfortunately you'll have to talk to like an artistic director, <laughs> or our literary manager yeah. about that. Um, about the ratios. Because I, I still would guess that it'd probably be even a more than six to one ratio of male playwrights submitting. I would agree. I would agree. And I, I think that keys into what I said earlier about women don't feel empowered to tell their story or feel this, this push to do so. Um, and again, 
you know. But isn't it, I mean, I'll, I'll relate to something completely unrelated mm-hmm. where I don't really think there's any social issues. Every once in a while I hear, because I also do like audio recording and engineering, and I, and I hear, you know, every once in a while some women scream, that there's, oh, there's not enough women producers and audio engineers. Mm-hmm. And it's like, actually, I'd say professionally, they're overrepresented. Because if you look around in the audio engineering schools and just in the things, there's none. There's no, and in fact, I'd say there's the reverse. God, we would love to have a woman in the studio, <laughs> but they're just not heading that way. And I don't think recording, you know, is you know, is such a thing that there's societal, you know, images telling people, you know, women mm. not to do that. I, I think there's, I do think there's something biologically. Again, I'm going to go. It's, I don't think it's biological. I think it's social because. Or you maybe a social over. Yeah. Well, it's a very, it's a very easy thing. Just think about it. We even have these Eons. jokes about it that men talk, women listen. <laughs> 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 women, is that socially? You know, it's from a young age. We're taught how to be boys and girls very, very young, and you know they've they've seen in the schools when boys raise their hands the teacher calls on them and and just it slowly but surely women get used to listening and men get used to talking so i that's i think it's just a, it's a social trend which i think is changing it's definitely changing so um but yes there definitely is something that i think that we each as individuals have to take a look at and also it's easy to not step forward it's easy not to speak it's easy to you know be the support system um so what i'm hoping is that uh, the women of the world take have a little more courage to step forward and find their voice and find whatever it is that you know inspires them and have the courage to just go after it and do it and yes they're going to hit some walls they're going to hit some resistance but just keep going so yeah, I'd actually just like to I'll maybe read some of the if people email me on there. I'd just actually, at the, while I'm doing this, I'd like to put out maybe a, a call to some of my female listeners, you know, if they have any insights of why they've made some choices or not made some choices to go ahead and email me at you know, mgilbo at broadwaybullet.com because I, I have thought about this a lot as mm-hmm. to why things lean so gender-biased one side towards another. But obviously, when you get a lot of male playwrights, they're going to write more male parts. Right, because they're going to write stories that interest them. (laughs) (laughs) No, I like to, you know, I'm going to write stories that interest me. I'm probably going to write a female protagonist. You know, when I go rent movies, I'm looking for a strong female lead. So it's just natural that you want to see yourself on stage. You want to, to, you know, see a mirror that reflects something of your experience back to you. But there is also another trend, which is that women are used to, it's called substitution. You know, as young as it, I know for me as a, as a young child growing up is I could substitute myself into a story that had a boy. So, for instance, I could identify myself as, as Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, you know, all those. But men don't do substitution as well because their stories are so represented out there. So a woman will go see. That's why men's resistance to go seeing a chick flick. Okay. <laughs> no, it actually makes sense. I hadn't really yeah. thought about that aspect. But, no, it, it does make Makes mm-hmm. sense. Women will go watch a story. Will go watch Richard the Third with an all male cast, and feel like, oh God, I feel like Richard, or I feel like Buckingham, and they will substitute themselves in it, and they don't see the gender; they just see the humanity of the character. And men tend to get more caught up on um, this is, you know, well, this is a woman's story instead of seeing, you know, what is in it for them. Well. I think it also maybe reflects a bit of desires. Because on that end, I would be willing to bet that gay men do the substitution thing a lot. Oh, yes, very much you know? so. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think maybe it more ties into, you know, like you can imagine yourself as Huck Finn because you see 
a more of a masculine rebel, you know, going out and, and exploring. It's not that he's a guy, it's that he's doing the things you want to do. But exactly. I don't like when it comes to the chick flick, a, a guy, most average straight guys aren't going to look at the corset films and go, oh, yeah, I wish I, I really wish I were, you know. Kate Winslet in that court, you know. <laughs> it's true, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because what it is is that, you know. What's curious is with, you know, like Angelina Jolie becoming someone of like an action, you know, yes. hero and stuff. That's a situation where I wonder, do some guys see that movie mm-hmm. and not see the gender but just go, what a kick-ass character. Right, well, that was the power of actually Jodie Foster in Flight Pan- Plan is everybody, so I hope I'm getting the name Flight of that. Flight Plan, yeah. Yeah, I hope I'm getting the name of that, that movie right is that what was noted was that it was a male action film that she stepped into. They did not feminize that character at all. You know, she definitely gave a twist on it in terms of, you know, she was much more emotionally open. She was having a reaction to what was happening in terms of the story. But in terms of her decking somebody mm-hmm. and actively pursuing, it was, they, it was a, they could have dropped a man in that role. And my understanding is that it was originally written for a male. I'm sure and, it was. <laughs> yeah. And what you're seeing that is that in the films, that films are actually leading the way because they're just making people. Because ultimately what we're talking about is why don't we just get down to the humanity of these characters? There's some people who are active and action-oriented, some people who are nurturers, some people who are this. You know, I know a lot of men who are staying home and taking care of the kids. So where do they find reflections of that? So, and I do think that with, because you have so many men writing stories and getting their stories out there, you have a much wider palette of experience for men to find themselves. And because, you know, there are fewer women writing these stories, you get fewer possibilities. So women have to look outward. And same thing for gay men. Same thing for uh, people of color. You know, the more we get these, it's a broadness of experience. We only have one or two stories being told. It's going to be hit or miss about whether you're going to find yourself with somebody who actually looks like you, having your inner soul experience of how you move through the world as a human being. I bet I know where more straight men do substitution. Mm-hmm. Books. Ah. You know, because the books are one area where I would say even with male writers, uh, they often heavily dominate. You know, towards the the majority of the reading audience, which is women, mm-hmm. and those of us guys who read a lot. When I'm reading a female protagonist, I, I will admit I don't necessarily think gender in you know depending on the character. But if it's like, you know, an you know if it's an action-oriented book and it's an FBI detective, I'm not necessarily going oh it's a chick the whole time. I'm just right. kind of. Books are really good about because you're not actually seeing the person in front of you, so you're not constantly reminded about what they look like. What it really is is it's the voice and soul of the character. I mean, a good writer will release the inner life of their character and that's what you're identifying with and that's always what's been interesting for me in in theater is yes, now veering back to the queen yes. which I, I was about to do because we've gotten very off track <laughs> but this is kind of this kind of stuff that yeah. totally fascinates me about because storytelling is my passion how we tell our stories to each other how we find our own specific story and we find the universality of our specific story so if i'm telling about my life i can find something that reaches out and touches you and that's to me, the art of really great storytelling. And in theater and any kind of visual art where you actually see you know, the person and character that you're looking at, what's, um, what I like to do is get the audience to really see not just the veneer, not just the image, because we're such an image-oriented culture, even how we present ourselves to the world, is I really want the audience to see the soul of the character, to see their, how, you know, to see their essence. 
and that that essence is clothed in whatever body it is. But ultimately, you know, if you're in a, an ambitious backstabbing, um, you know, if you're a Richard III, that can come in any gender, shape, or color you choose, as I'm sure we have all encountered, people who have tried to climb up the ladder on our backs. So in the same way in terms of where there's kindness that has happened to us, that can happen in any, um, in any gender, any color, any shape of body. And to find the, the essence, the heart and the soul, and get a try to disengage ourselves as a culture a little bit from, away from image and really see each other for who we are as individuals and not members of a group. Now, I'm kind of curious how the dynamic of the actors, what they kind of open and discover. Because I would guess that doing an all-female version of like one of these plays is a very different dynamic than doing, like, say, Steel Magnolias. Yes. Um, in terms of the range just of the characters that get mm -hmm. played. Very much so. And um, do you sense a reaction? Is there a different kind of energy in the room as they kind of realize what's going on? Or No, there's definitely a playfulness because it's really lovely to have, you know, the, the male players and, and, the, and the female players. Because there's women and men on this stage. It's very clear when you come to see the show. I've actually had older audience members um, who are not as used to the fluidity of gender as younger generations are will... Um, leave not knowing they've seen an all one gender cast which is kind of amazing to me but i've had proven you know my costume designer was sitting in front of an older couple and at intermission uh the woman leaned over to her husband and said honey i think that one character is actually a woman and he looked at her and said no that's not possible <laughs> <laughs> so there definitely is um a sense of you know camaraderie and courage and safety in the room with an all one gender cast which I actually encountered, because before, way back before I started doing this work, I directed two all-male casts, not within Shakespeare, but it was just it was uh, Lisbon Traviata and The Dance on the Railroad. Dance on the Railroad. So I found that there is, um, just because we do unfortunately have a gender divide in our culture, um, that there is just a sense of relaxation and safety that men feel with each other and that women feel with each other when there's just one gender in the room. Um, and that, that I found is curious. And I can do that. You can definitely do that with a mixed gender cast, but it's, it doesn't happen as quickly. It takes a little bit of time for people to really trust them, each other and to form. Sort out if they want to sleep with the other one or not. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all that lovely stuff that happens in any group of people, whether all one gender or, or mixed. <laughs> so, and then actually, you know, going to that, it's, that's the other lovely thing about one gender cast, which I've also seen in... Um, the all-male companies I've seen that, that come over from England, is that this, it, not only is it becomes this fluidity between what it is to be um, a man and what it is to be a woman, but what the fluidity between gay and straight, it really is just about desire and attraction. Because ultimately, the story that we're put, putting on stage is a straight story, you know, men fall in love with women. Though in Twelfth Night, there mm -hmm. definitely is, you know, homosexual eroticism between Antonio and Sebastian which we've had quite a lot of fun with in terms of also our own, you know, um, contemporary take on queer and straight politics. But what I love is that people come to, to our plays who, you know, they're straight, they're queer, and they find themselves in the relationships. So you can, and you see that ultimately, you know, it's the essence of desire and that transcends all boundaries of straight and gay. So... All right. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. And uh, Twelfth Night is playing through November 23rd. 
Mm -hmm. That's right. We open tomorrow night, November 8th. And uh, what, uh, where can they go to get tickets? Um, you can go to SmartTix, www.smartTix.com, or you can also go to our website, which has a link right to it at www.queenscompany.org. And I'm assuming you have information about upcoming stuff. and We sure do. Because this is something you do rather continually. How, how, how many shows do you produce in a season? Or? Well, we've actually geared down a little bit. Um, we've, it's been a two-year gap between our last show. Um, part of that is simply just the reality of producing in New York City um, has gotten very expensive. And also, um, we're outreaching because we'd like to be doing work with other companies as well, getting produced um, with other companies. So, for instance, we did an all-female production with Resonance Ensemble. So we're not just being produced with the Queen's Company anymore. We're also being produced through um, other companies looking for those opportunities. And we're also workshopping more because we have a huge... Um, ability to generate a lot of pr lot of productions, much more so than our ability to um, produce them. So probably one a year, one every two years is what we're we're balancing right now. All right. So don't miss this opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Rebecca Patterson, I thank you so much for coming in for this fascinating discussion, and I hope everybody can get a chance to check out Twelfth Night at uh, Urban Stages. Thanks Great. for stopping by. Thank you. The Callboard. All right, first up on the call board, Broadway TV and film writer Larry Gelbert, whose stage projects include Sly Fox, City of Angels, Mastergate, and A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, will be presented with the Penn USA Lifetime Achievement Award at the annual Literary Awards Festival Gala Dinner on December 3rd. Penn USA is the West Coast Center for the renowned writers' organization, International Penn. In addition to the November 10th announcement of the Gelbart Honor, the group announced winners of its prestigious 2008 Literary Awards competition. The prize is announced by Penn USA Executive Director Adam Sommers, honor outstanding work by writers in 10 separate genres. They will be presented in the 18th Annual Gala December 3rd at the Beverly Hills Hotel in Beverly Hills, California. Next... The 2009 Arena Stage Student Playwright Projects invites all students between 5th and 12th grade in the District of Columbia and its neighboring counties to enter into competition an original 10-minute play. Entries must be delivered to Arena Stage by Friday, December 5th, 2008, so you get a little bit of time. The winning students will receive playwriting masterclasses and participate in further script development with professional playwrights, directors, and dramaturgs. The winning entries will then be performed by professional actors. All winning playwrights receive $500. For details and guidelines for submissions, please go to arenastage.com. And finally, Tony Award-winning musical theater composer-lyricist Stephen Sondheim, currently represented off-Broadway with the new musical Roadshow at The Public, will take part in an upcoming evening at Avery Fisher Hall, entitled Stephen Sondheim, A Life in the Theater. The January 18, 2009 event will feature Stephen Sondheim and former New York Times theater critic Frank Rich. Showtime is 8 p.m. Sondheim and Rich, according to a press statement, quote, will engage in a live, unscripted conversation reminiscing about Stephen Sondheim's career, legendary collaborations, inspirations, and rich theatrical and, uh, and cinematic resume. On the boards. A new play by playwright Blair Singer has opened in New York. It's called The Most Damaging Wound, and it's about an unresolved rift between a group of old college buddies. And we have got the playwright Blair Singer here with us to talk about the show. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good, Michael. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, now I understand you're no, you're no stranger to new media here with your... I love the new media. I'm all about the new media. Um, I have worked in new media. I watched new media. Uh, I wrote for Lonely Girl 15, which was one of the first um, 
YouTube hits and and uh, internet series. I worked for season three, and um, you know I've been doing pays really well, right? Oh yeah, no, I'm rich. <laughs> I mean, if you look at me, I, I, you people can't see me, but not only am I devastatingly handsome, but he's, I just but he's sporting bling. I drip, drip money. <laughs> I mean, I'm so it's. Uh, it's like a gold lame. It's a beautiful. I can't describe it, but yes, I'm rich. Uh, I'm rich off that, and I think I'll get rich off this podcast too. I don't know how, but I, I somehow I feel money while I'm sitting here with you. Well, I do want to get back to some of your new media stuff, but before we yeah. do, we should probably talk a little bit about your current project, the most, the most damaging, damaging wound. The most damaging wound is the uh, is a play that I wrote right before I got married. Uh, we can talk about why I got married some other time. Um, but uh, before I got married, I was very focused on what it meant to be a man. And, uh, you know, the sex change had taken hold for me. So, sorry. No, you can't see me, but I'm all man, people. I'm all man. Um, but uh, I, I was very, you know, I was at the time just starting my writing career. I had been an actor, and that didn't go well at all. And so, you know, I'd been doing the round of temp jobs and waitering jobs, and I worked for a magazine for a while. And the thought of being a provider in a family really was so far away from anything that I was close to being. Um, I think the most I had made in my life was 20, 20 or 25,000 bucks a year. And um, so I wrote this play as a kind of exploration of men who hadn't yet formed, boys who hadn't yet formed into men. And uh, it's about a group of, of guys who all went to Syracuse University together. I didn't go to Syracuse, but it's near Canada, and I wanted to do this whole fucking thing about, you know, going to Canada. So uh, it's about these guys who went to Syracuse together, and they had all taken a men and masculinity class which was basically taught by a burnout teacher a la Robert Bly. Because that's a class we need. That's Yes, that's right, because more <laughs> men. Uh, as they say in the play, you know, it's uh, one character says, the men's, the men's movement, the men's movement, like the history of the fucking world is a men's movement. <laughs> Why do we need to call it that? Um, but it, it really was about how men don't really talk intimately with one another and we need that i think i believe that we need male intimacy um non-sexual male intimacy where two men aren't just high-fiving but are actually uh being vulnerable with each other and so that's how the play started and uh that was seven years ago and then uh we have done a lot of work on it since and it's turned out to be a, a phenomenal project with the greatest acting company I've ever had the ple- pleasure of working with, uh, and maybe the hottest girl ever. <laughs> on a on a tangent, you know who you sound like, and maybe some of the listeners are. We should do an interview after this, yeah. and I'll t- tell people that I got Jeremy Piven from Speed the you Plow. Got it. Fair enough. Fair enough. You, you sound amazingly like Jeremy Piven. You know, it's it's uh, the Piven impersonation <laughs> is, is is helping. Yeah, uh, I'm much less better paid. <laughs> uh, not that this whole interview should become about how much money I make, but Piven makes more. I, Maybe I just, a little? A little. Just a little. But just because he's having a good year. <laughs> Last year I was kicking ass. This year's a little slow. You know, the strike and all that. Um, there actually seems to have been a, you know quite a few plays recently in the past year or two that have kind of, you know, been kind of real male, buddy-centric kind of. Yeah. So what, where does your piece kind of... 
fit in or stand out among... You know, um, Steve Belber wrote a play called Fault Lines that's being done at the Cherry Lane. I'm not sure exactly when that closes. Uh, Steve's a very good friend of mine. We wrote these plays independently. We, you know, certainly he's having an exceptional playwriting career, and um, I know he didn't go rooting through my drawer looking for some of my old plays and then stealing them. Um, To me, what... And I think Steve's play is terrific, and... What separates, I think, Most Damaging Wound from that genre of plays, the sort of male buddy-buddy plays, is that at some point the uh, mask of drinking and the, the, not the mask, the sort of facade that all, that men put up of, you know, I'm this fucking, you know, guy with my friends. And that, that comes down. And I think it's the rawest, most vulnerable male writing, uh, I, I, not in comparison to the other two, but certainly that, that I've had the pleasure of, of watching actors play. Um, so I think it's men behaving in a way that even in other buddy-buddy shows or plays like that championship season or um, that I'm a huge fan of or, or Mammoth plays that are all men, Speed the Plow, American Buffalo, um, and not that I'm comparing my work at all to Mammoth because, mm-hmm. you know, I should be so lucky to achieve, you know, an eighth of what he's achieved. But um, But I think there is a vulnerability about these particular men that we don't see, um, a way of talking to each other that we just don't see, and that the history of, of male plays doesn't seem to me to have explored, I hope. <laughs> now, you already opened on November 7th. We did. And I'm curious, after you got the, the five straight guys who go see theater in New York, mm-hmm. um, what has the audience been like? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, the five straight guys have come, and they loved it. So, uh, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's been a very eclectic mix. It's been young and old. Um, the production company, which is the theater company that's producing it, um, has, a, has an Australian and an American alliance. Um, the previous projects, they brought Australian playwrights over and who have written about America, and they've had American playwrights write about Australia. This has nothing to do with Australia, except we, you know, drink a lot, and I have this idea that Australians drink a lot. Um, but there have been a lot of Australians that have come to the play, both young and old. Um, it's a play that I think, you know, the women folk who have seen it, of which we've had a large female audience, are having a much different reaction to the play. One of, I think, anthropological curiosity. You know, it's like going to the zoo and seeing these men who you normally have seen a certain way, you know, throwing shit up against the glass wall. And this time they're, you know, actually hugging and talking to each other. And um, my mother liked it. <laughs> uh, my mother liked it. My father liked it, though he's a straight male. So he's the sixth. Um but we've been, you know, I mean, I think it's it's a sort of hodgepodge mutt collection of people who have somehow found us. Uh, once they get into this little theater down there on McDougal, people are having a great time. It's just a question of can you get people to come off off-Broadway? And, um, you know, so far we've been very fortunate, and we're hoping to continue that through the run. But it's hard. It's really hard to pull... 
you know, even 40 seats, it's really hard to fill 40 seats. Um, it's it's all harder to fill 40 seats in a lot of ways than to fill, you know, 1,000. Well, certainly when you don't have any yeah. kind of huge marketing arm and, you, you know, our, our publicity budget is, is negligible. Um, so we've been using non-traditional or what are becoming more new traditional, you know, <laughs> new media ways, uh, podcasts such as yours, um, and New York Theater Cast we also did. Um, using a, a lot of Facebook Facebook pages, Facebook invites, Facebook event pages, um, where we have a YouTube page where we've shot about ten or eleven promotional videos. Um, we're on RocketBoom.com this morning, which is a three-minute video log. So we're just trying to get the idea that this is something people should come see out in as many channels as possible. And hopefully we'll inspire the people who know us, who say, yeah, 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 I'll come, I'll see, yeah, I'm really going to try to come, that eventually they're flooded by so much information that they just have to come. And once we get people in the theater, people are having very personal experiences to the play. Um, but it's a challenge, as you know, to get people to come to this little theater off of McDougal and... You know, so far we've done well, but we're we're hoping you put us over the fucking top. And if you don't, I'm coming back and kicking your ass. No, sorry. It's cool guitars, by the way. Very oh. cool guitars. I, I should sing for your audience. <laughs> Jeremy Piven sings. Uh, as a playwright um, or as a writer, you've also yeah. done a lot of work for uh, like TV and new media and have film too. Or uh, I'm currently working on my first paid film uh, for MTV. Uh, called Down With Prom, about a group of anti-prom activists who try to uh, take down prom. It's sort of fun, and MTV is, uh, it's been a fun little project. But yes, I've mostly worked in television. Um, when I started writing, which was after I turned 30, um, and I met the woman of my dreams and decided I was going to get married, um, I knew I had to make money, and I knew theater was not a way to make money, and certainly not at the pace that I was going, which was um, nothing, a no pace. And I started moving into television. My first job was on a show called Book of Daniel, which was a show about a priest who had a Vicodin habit who saw Jesus. And um, Aidan Quinn played the priest. A wonderful New York theater actor named Garrett Dillahunt played Jesus. Uh, Allison Pill played the daughter, and it was a great show that uh, NBC got into a lot of hot water with. Um, the religious right came after us even before they had seen anything. NBC started to get nervous. Um, it sort of went from being the show about discussing religion and flaw in America to then becoming some sort of Desperate Housewives meets The Sopranos meets Touched by an Angel. And by the time we had sort of found whatever it was that we were producing, we had been canceled. So that was my first lovely introduction to television. Then I went to work on uh, a show called Monk, which is on the USA Network with Tony Shalhoub. What, actually one of my favorites. Great show. Uh, Tony's a great guy, and it's a great crew of writers, and uh, led by Andy Breckman, who was the creator and, and writer of it. Very funny man. I was very lucky to, to work on that show for a year for the fifth season 
Uh, it was a fun room to be in. I don't particularly see myself as being a comedian, or uh, but it was populated by a, a lot of guys from late night. Uh, Joe Toplin, who had run uh, the Letterman Show for a while, and he was—I think he's the only writer who's ever run Letterman and the Tonight Show. Um, so it was just a great experience to be in this room with really funny men. And uh, and then I moved into—I I left there and I went and worked on Weeds on Showtime, which was also a great experience, um, and great to work with Mary Louise, who's you know one of our I think finest actors in America. Um, and television's really helped me as a writer. It's given me, first of all, it's given me money to be able to support my playwriting habit. Um, it's given me confidence to knowing that I've gotten paid to be a writer. And it certainly helps you get, um, you know, unfortunately, there are, you know, producers read your play and they hear you've written for Weeds and Monk and all of a sudden they read it with a slightly different eye than they would have if you were just some schmuck, you know, from Brooklyn, which I really am just some schmuck from Brooklyn, but but that seems to give me a little bit of cachet. Um, but it's much better to work in the theater. I mean, not financially, but it's just, you know, it's a completely different beast and much more fun and much more rewarding. Writing for shows like uh, Monk and Weeds, how much of that is like five guys sitting around a table throwing ideas and how much is you actually getting to write yourself? You know, it's a lot of, of gang gang warfare. Um, I, my mentor in, in television has been a guy named John Tinker, whose father, Grant Tinker, had run NBC, and then he, um, he had married Mary Tyler Moore, and he started MTM Studios, and so Grant's been in the TV business forever. I mean, Tinker's, uh, John Tinker's been in the business forever. And Tinker pulled me aside on my first job, Book of Daniel, and he said, this is not a writing job. This is a making television job. So you need to change your perspective. Because really, on even on writing-heavy shows like Weeds was a, a, a serialized writing-heavy show, you know, I wrote... I worked there for seven months, and I wrote one script, and the rest of the time I was in the room pitching in ideas for where the season was going to go, or jokes, or, you know, what if this character does that. My actual time writing was less than a month. So um, it's there's a big room element of all the writers get in there and, uh, and break story together and, and then rip apart scripts and put them back together. Um, which can be really fun. I mean, and, and it, with a good group, very funny and passes the time really well. It's just not writing as, you know, those of us who come from other disciplines other than television, no writing as. Because, you know, a play, you sit there and you work on it for years and years and do readings. And, I mean, this whole fucking development system, which is just a, you know, piece of shit system as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> But uh, uh, because I don't think it makes better plays. I think it just makes safer plays. And certainly for guys like you and I uh, and a younger audience, we're not looking for the antiseptic safe play that, you know, all the edges have been rounded. We're looking for something that excites us and, and disturbs us and makes us laugh in ways that we haven't laughed. And and I, that's a whole other story for another day. <laughs> but, but certainly... Um, there is there's a solitary nature to playwriting that doesn't really exist in television for you know a little smidgen of the time but most of the time it's spent in a room or at least my experience there are rooms you know like law and order doesn't have a room mm-hmm. but it's a different kind of writing uh, it's more procedural writing it's more um, 
not not writing by numbers, but there is definitely a formula mm-hmm. to it. Uh, but the shows I've been on, yeah, we, we sit around in a room. We eat way too much. Um, I mean, people can't see me, but not only am I very well-dressed, but I'm probably 30 pounds overweight, and I'm being generous to myself. <laughs> so, you know, um, and that's all because of room food because room food is always crap it's always like <laughs> skittles and m&ms and and pastries and you know food is the only thing that writers look forward to during the day so um yeah it's a bunch of writers sitting around making up you know dick jokes for six hours eight hours and then every once in a while you get to write uh but it, it, it's fun it's a different beast but it's fun definitely fun now you said you didn't even get into writing until you were about 30 I didn't become a writer until I was writing before, uh, but yes, I didn't. I didn't. Well, one th- I find that interesting with your talk about the TV shows because it seemed like a few years ago everybody was talking about how, like, basically, if you're 25, you're over the hill in writing for yep. television. So, did you find it hard breaking in? Over, you know, um, I think certainly if I w- in, it's my understanding that if I wanted to be a sitcom writer. Uh, if I wanted to write on Two and a Half Men or if I wanted to write on The Big Bang Theory or, you know, a sort of... Or even My Name is Earl or a sort of more traditional half-hour comedy, The Office, um, something that that markets itself as a comedy where they run a comedy room um, that I would definitely be over the hill. I'm 38. I mean, I'm practically over the hill for everything um, except for Viagra. So, um, but... Times have changed a little bit in one-hour drama or in half-an-hour drama, certainly in single-camera shows like Weeds where uh, they're written more like films and um, staffs have skewed older. Um, The more success they've had with older writers, the more they're having them. Uh, I don't know at what point that stops. Um, But in dramas, they're they're looking at older writers... um, but, yeah, it wasn't hard for me to break in, and it'll, it'll be interesting to see in the next five or ten years whether it remains as um, I've been very fortunate, whether I'm as fortunate in the next five or ten years. Uh, I, th- I think I will be, but I, I think uh, it, it may be more on the developing and creating side rather than being some being on staff of somebody else's show. Uh, I think I may age out of that pretty soon. But, you know, The Wire, which was written by David Simon, had a staff all in their 50s, uh, you know, 40s and 50s of great writers like Richard Price and Dennis Lehane and um, George Pelicanos. And, you know, these are all real writers, grown men. I think people are realizing that if you're going to write a mature show, you need mature writers to write it. Uh, It seems to make sense to me. But... You know, we'll see. I'll call you in five years and let you know how it's working out. <laughs> All right. So the most damaging wound. Um, where is this playing at again? Most damaging wound. The Manhattan Theater Source, one seventy seven McDougal Street Avenue. Uh, right around the corner from Babo, you can go get your three hundred dollar dinner and then come down the street and get your twenty dollar play. <laughs> I mean, this is a good night. Uh, www dot productioncompany.org Wow, that's a generic name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, and it's running till the 29th of November. I guarantee 
it is some of the best and I, as a former actor who trained at Juilliard I feel like I have a good even though I wasn't a good actor I have a good appreciation for acting it is some of the best acting you will see I don't care off 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 or on Broadway some of the best acting that's going on now in New York ego free hungry actors playing the play like motherfuckers I mean it's just it's an impressive group of people so all right, Blair Singer, thank you so much for coming on and Michael, talking about the show. Best of luck me. with your run. Thank you. Okay. On the positive side. Once again, this is Marty Cooper on the positive side. Yes, I am back, just when you thought it was safe to listen to your podcasts. I have some news. Uh, on, on November 1st of this year, I retired from Colony Records for various reasons. I'm happy. I'm, I felt after 27 years and at 64 years of age, uh, I need a little less stress in my life. So if anybody wants to get in touch with me, if you have any ideas about what I've talked about or anything like that, you won't. Actually, Michael Gilbo did find me a colony, and uh, in the future, you won't. So if you want to talk to me, just email me at broadwaymarty at aol.com. Now, this week, uh, last week actually, last Friday night, uh, I had the pleasure of, of going to the Imperial Theater to see Billy Elliot. Uh, needless to say, uh, I loved it. Uh, I, <laughs> actually, Michael is sitting right across from me and he's giggling at that. Uh, what else? You know, it's got to be really bad for uh, me not to love something. But this is really a great show. I saw it in London twice. Uh, I feel it works. It works much better in, in the Imperial Theater. Uh, it's a smaller, more intimate house, although the stage is just about as big. And the amazing things they do at that stage, you can't believe. How they don't break down every night, I don't understand. You know, you have rooms coming out of the floor, you have elevators going down into the floor. How someone doesn't just break their neck, you know, falling into the uh, stage, I don't understand. And I must say, you know my views on, on keyboards and real strings and everything like that. You go to Billy Elliot and you cannot tell by any means that there is not a real string in that pit. It's all keyboards and I gotta say it sounds full and wonderful. Forgive me, forgive me all of you people out there that wrote me saying, hallelujah, somebody finally somebody's finally feeling this way, and, uh, but in this show it works. On the night I saw the show, I, I saw Trent Kowalik, uh, who was one of the three boys that plays Billy. He was fantastic. Uh, the end of Act One uh, just blows you away totally. His little uh, cross-dressing friend is played, was played by David Bologna. He will have a future in the theater for sure. Actually, they both will. You know, the one who plays the dad is a friend of mine, Craig Jabara. Fantastic. He's just out there. He's almost on stage all the time. And, and God bless her, Carol Shelley plays the grandmother. I think she does a, a wonderful dance to a number called We Go Dancing, which is kind of reminiscent of anybody who saw Blood Brothers many years ago. It's a similar type uh, topic. It's this older woman talking about her passed on husband who in her 
words was a bastard, you know. But she had a great time with him when they went out. From England, we got Hayden Gwynn as Mrs. Wilkinson, the teacher, uh, the dance teacher. Fantastic. I've seen her twice in London. I saw her here. She is unbelievable. One thing I must say about Billy Elliot, like a lot of shows that I've enjoyed a lot, you know, like Les Miserables, Miss Saigon, you know, all the pop operas of the 80s and 90s, there is at least one or two or three great moments in both acts. The most fantastically staged number I've ever seen is Solidarity in the first act. It's done by the miners, the striking miners, uh, the policemen who are after them with their sticks, and the dancing kids. And they're back and forth spinning around the stage all at the same time. And it, it, just, it just is fantastically done. One little note, if anybody knows what the, what the main story of the musical is about, or of the movie, uh, besides the, the kid who, whose father wants him to learn boxing, and uh, he wants to go off to dancing school, and he is, he's very talented. The main story is that Margaret Thatcher actually tried to break the union in 1984, the miners' union, and she very well did. Uh, in fact, at the time, she would have uh, coal uh, imported from Eastern Europe just so she wouldn't need her striking miners. So the opening of the second act is a song called Merry Christmas, Maggie Thatcher, and uh, uh, it's a fantastic number. I read a few months ago, they asked Elton, uh, Margaret Thatcher, Mrs. Thatcher, who was ill at the time, she's an elderly lady, uh, they asked him if he would, after she passed on, remove the song from the show. And he said, never. I mean, it is a spoof on her life and the way she is. Everyone was dressed as her on the stage. And coming up from the, behind the set was a huge puppet. Huge, it must be about a story tall of Margaret Thatcher. You know, I know a lot of English people, and I know when she was prime minister, the, at least the people I know didn't, didn't fancy her too much, actually. But in any case, I love the show. If you can get a ticket, go to the Imperial Theater or go to uh, uh, Ticketmaster, or to, to Telecharge, I think it is, in the case of the Imperial. But if you're going to see one show this year, and we can't afford much more than one or two, uh, make this one of them, believe me. I loved it. I want to go back. I, I loved all the people in it. Uh, that's all I have to say. Well, once again, there's Marty Cooper say, saying stay on the positive side if you have, once again, if you want to talk to me or anything like that. Uh, if you have any opinions, email me at broadwaymarty, one word, at AOL.com. And to match Marty's enthusiasm for the new production of Billy Elliot, I thought I'd play a selection from the original London cast recording. This is Expressing Yourself from Billy Elliot. Is it sinful if you're blue to cheer up the place 
What is wrong with dressing up in satin and lace? Oh no! Get some earrings, some mascara, heels and a fan. Pretty soon you will start to feel a different man. Ole, baby!
The Producer's Perspective. Hi, everybody. Ken Davenport here from theproducersperspective.com. You know, one of the toughest lessons that any producer has to learn is that sometimes people aren't going to like your shows. In fact, uh, sometimes they'll even leave before it's over. We've all seen it happen. A couple gets up from the back or the front and awkwardly exits the theater. And everyone else kind of looks at them going, ooh, they didn't like it. But what you have to learn is there's really not much you can do. You can't please everybody. Frankly, I'm sure that people walked out of the original production of Oedipus Rex way back when. I mean, think about it. That show had incest, violence. It made Spring Awakening look like an episode of Hee Haw. Now, these people that walk out, sometimes they go up to the box office and they ask for their money back. Now, here's where you have to ask yourself as a producer, what do you do when people who leave your shows want a refund? Well, the theater has always printed its harsh no refunds, no exchanges policy right on the ticket, as if to say, don't even ask us or we'll beat you with a stick. Most people don't ask, and frankly, they shouldn't. You don't ask for a refund if you don't like a movie. You don't ask for a refund if you're unhappy with the exhibits hanging on the wall at a museum. When you pay the admission price for any of these things, you're paying for an objective experience and you're taking a risk right along with everybody else. The problem is that the cost of a theater ticket is a lot more than a movie ticket or a museum entrance fee. So I'd wager that the theater gets more refund requests than both of those places combined. You can't just give customers their money back because they didn't like the show. But in today's customer service oriented world, the don't ask for your money back or the box office treasure will beat you policy doesn't really work either. It's your responsibility as a producer to temper your customer's unhappiness as much as possible, to try and reduce the volume of that customer's word of mouth because it certainly is not gonna be good. We already know that word of mouth is what sells tickets. Well, negative word of mouth can do absolutely the opposite of that. And if someone is leaving early, you gotta do everything in your power to at least soften what they're saying. So what can you or your very ably-minded box office do? Well, if people are leaving early, I do just about anything short of a tap dance to get them back in the theater to see the full show. To use some specific examples, both The Awesome 80s Prom and Alter Boys are, are both shows that take a few minutes to get going, and snap judgments aren't good for any show, but especially these two. I even promised one couple that I'd take them out to dinner if they sat through the show and then still wanted their money back. That's how confident I was in the product and the overall experience. Well, though that couple ended up actually buying me dinner uh, and or even expressed some interest in investing in a show in the future. When people won't stay, I always offer them a chance to come back and see the show again. Most refuse, as you can expect. So my second step is to offer them a voucher that they can give to friends who they think might like the show more. I even suggest they give the vouchers away as a Christmas gift or a birthday gift. This way, I'm saving them some money. If that fails, I offer them free tickets to another one of my shows or a steep discount if one of the shows is sold out. I offer them t-shirts, I offer them drinks at the bar, anything except for refunding that admission price. Maybe they won't take me up on any of it. But what they do see is that I'm trying to do everything I can to provide them with some sort of value for their experience. Remember, you have what's printed on the ticket, that very strict policy that they knew coming in. But when they see you going through this effort, it usually softens the temper. And after you've jumped through 142 hoops, if it doesn't soften their temper and they're still as mad as ever and they still want their money back, 
I still won't give it to them. Why? Because there's a certain type of person that if they don't like an experience, they're going to talk about it negatively no matter what you do. You could turn cartwheels. You could get Madonna to show up and sing for them personally. You could triple their money back. And it's still not going to work. There's no black or white in customer service. I don't care how many places it's printed, no refunds or no exchanges. As a producer, it's your job to do everything you can to make sure that customer is happy, short of sacrificing your show. I'm Ken Davenport with theproducersperspective.com. In the best of company. Recently, you heard a brief interview with the Boomerang Theater Company at the NYIT Awards that I was at when they won the... Oh, gosh. Caf, cappuccino, caf, <laughs> the Cafe Chino Fellowship. Cafe Chino Fellowship for continued outstanding excellence for a theater company. They're entering their 10th season. 10th, yeah. And uh, they've got a rep of three shows opening November 13th. And with all that going on, I thought it'd be a great time to bring in Tim Erickson, the artistic director, to chat a little bit more about Boomerang Theater Company and their rep season coming up. Awesome. Thanks for having me. So how's it going? It's going great. We're really excited. It's been a it's been a fun week getting things ready. We open on the 13th, so Thursday of this week. And uh, And how have you juggled that with all the star-studded parties after you won your uh, Oh, it's award. just been madness. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, the day after we won the award, we go right back to work. So it's uh, it's a blue-collar aesthetic for the most part. I mean, I hear Paris Hilton will show up to about anything. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah, she was there, but uh, you know, we had no time for her. She and the little dog had to go away. We had to get back to business. <laughs> so what's going on in the rep here? The, you actually got three shows in, for, this is actual rep, three sets, three rep. Yeah, rep. three sets, three casts, three, uh, three full shows. We open Summer and Smoke this coming Thursday, November 13th. And Saturday the 15th, we open a world premiere of a new play called Parking Lot Lonely Heart. And then next Thursday, the 20th, we open an Eric Overmeyer play called Native Speech. And the Eric Overmeyer piece was written in 1983. It sort of was a lost play of his. Uh, very, very ahead of its time, and so we've we're reviving it. We've loved the play for a long time, and uh, excited to have it back on the boards 25 years after it was written. So, what are the big challenges for a, a smaller theater company in in mounting a full rep? Space, space that can accommodate uh, three full sets, three full casts, uh, three shows worth of costumes, three shows worth of props and not really feel the wear and tear of all those people tramping through all the time. Um, that's been our biggest challenge always is to try and find a space that can accommodate us. And we've been really lucky in the last six years to work at Center Stage New York, which has a giant facility in terms of what our needs are. But, uh, yeah, that's the biggest challenge. Enough hours in the day and enough space to hold all the parts of things, you know. It's a lot of moving parts sometimes. Now, in terms of like attracting audiences and getting out there, you know, in the off-off Broadway community, is it easier or harder to promote a rep season? Sometimes harder, I think. Initially, I think harder, because what you're doing is your message that you're trying to market gets a little bit diluted in that you're trying. Somebody can't say to you, "Oh, you're doing X," because really, what you're saying to people when you put your message out there is you're doing X, Y, Z, and so they have to sort of. I'd pick something to sort of hang their hat on, for lack of a better term. And so I think that... could it, really confuse them by mounting LMNO. Or right, exactly. <laughs> totally. Well, you know, how many letters of the alphabet can you mount at one time? Uh, 
So we have to sort of be very specific about and clear about what our message is, what shows we're doing, how we, how we get that message out to our audience via visuals, how many people we get to see, you know, in terms of postcards or marketing pieces. It, it's difficult a little bit. However, once that ball starts rolling and people see press releases and reviews and things, they start to get a sense of understanding of what the whole of the enterprise really is. Uh, and then they're really excited about it because they do come and see, let's say, Summer and Smoke and have a great time seeing that. And they get excited about the idea of coming back tomorrow and seeing native speech in the exact same place with a completely different experience. Um, and, and that kind of jazzes them up a little bit. And that's sort of always been the, the driving force behind the idea of rotating rep for us has been if you could take an audience member and you could bring them into your theater three nights out of their busy lives, you could give them wildly different fulfilling experiences in a way that they can't get anywhere else in the city with an intimacy that they can't get in any other venue in town. So why not try and do that? It's been a system that's worked for years and years. For you know, Shakespeare did things in rotating rep. You know, the National Theatre of Great Britain does things in rotating rep. The rotating rep system works because it gives people that opportunity to have such a breadth of choices. And if they choose to come multiple times, the experience of, the, of exceeding their expectations every time they sit in the same exact seat if they want to uh, is just such a thrill. They, they can't get it anywhere else. So when you're picking the shows to make up the rep, how, how much hair pulling is there going on to try to get the right balance of, uh, I'm guessing you kind of want things that feel like they go together in a, mm-hmm. in a certain way without being the exact same right. thing. So what's all involved with that in your selection of... The aesthetic a lot of times focuses on what we call new classic neglected. And the thought process is if we were to take three plays that fit into that category and an audience member were to see all three, would they see themes that resonate through all three? Would they see a theme in the first, let's say, in, in Summer and Smoke that has changed significantly by the time we get to 83 in, in Native Speech and then changed significantly again in Parking Lot in 2008? Or has there been a, a sort of humanity through line from 1916 to 1983 to 2008 where you can say, here's the thing that survives. All the other trappings fall away or change or morph, but the humanity of a thing uh, the idea of a thing stays constant or it has evolved as, as we as a people have evolved. So that's sort of the thinking of how we put things together. That's sort of a very sort of high-minded, yeah. weird way to say it. When it gets down to brass tacks, it's about what what shows feel right together. You know, what, what seasons uh, feel like they, they, they communicate to each other. They sort of talk to each other. And the hard part is when someone says, well, why do you pick these three shows? Many times... It's, it's an internal sort of feel. It's a gut reaction that sort of says, well, these things will sort of be, you know, fit together. Maybe not exactly fit, but they'll fit close enough that you can put them together and sort of see what happens. Put, a, put all the ingredients in and see where you go. Um, and and it's, it's not a logical thing sometimes. It's, it's sometimes a gut thing. And oftentimes after we put these dis- seemingly disparate pieces together, you find that there's a thing you didn't see. You know, you knew it subconsciously. Something was ticking around back there, but you didn't know that, you know, a theme of redemption or a theme of brotherhood or a theme of uh, 
you know, loneliness and overcoming, you know, connection has emerged that you didn't really consciously realize until you threw them all against the wall and saw what stuck, you know. I think it, in a way it's almost like if you took Jackson Pollock and he's throwing paint at the canvas, right? Like, it looks like he's just throwing crap up there. But when you look at it larger, you say, oh, gosh, well, look how that blue affects that green and how that, you know, it sort of fits together in a way that you didn't really always know. So what would you say are some of the themes or issues that tie together your, your three choices here? This year we're really talking a lot about redemption. We're talking a lot about uh, the long night of the soul and the idea of how connection can sort of overcome mistakes and sort of get you back to a place where you can go on. Uh, Summer and Smoke, obviously, for those who don't know, deals a lot with uh, a spinster's daughter and how she loves a sort of reprobate uh, preacher, uh, doctor's son across the yard and, and his lechery and sort of debauchery lifestyle versus her puritanical upbringing and sort of how they coexist. Can he, you know, show her a, a, a physical world of the flesh and can, or can he, she save his soul and sort of where that goes. Uh, parking Lot deals a lot with uh, a man who has made a lot of mistakes in his life but is really trying to turn them around. And, and when we open the play, he's at the rock bottom. He's made every bad choice possible, and he's about to make an, a, an even bigger one. And someone pulls him back and says, you don't have to go this way if you don't want to. And uh, that sort of leads him on a path where he starts to put things together, but then needs her help to sort of keep going forward and sort of really pull it up out of the, by his bootstraps. Uh, and native speech... It, it's such a hard play to describe because it's so language-based, but really what it's about at the end of the day is our, a guy who didn't really want to be a hero, who is just sort of doing things kind of selfishly, uh, has, a, has an opportunity to make an impact and sort of save the world in, in some ways. And at the last minute, Kent, does he have the, the strength to overcome his own needs to do it? Uh, so it, it goes talks a lot about our modern world in terms of we've all made a lot of mistakes, you know, whether it be as a country, as a people, you know, uh, 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 you know, everything. And how do we sort of keep going knowing that you're going to make mistakes? You know, you're going to you've got to take a new day. The sun will come up and can you redeem it and change the way you're going? Um, you can I just yeah. blindly ignore it. Our leader yeah, has. Yeah, well, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> but here, we, here, you know, especially in light of the events of the last, you know, eight, nine days, we as a people have said we're going to make some changes. We, we, can, we believe that we can make things better if we put our mind to it. And so our plays sort of have tapped into that idea of, as a people. I think that we've, we're choosing to make things better. We're not just going to sit by and let it suck <laughs> anymore, you know. You, we can do it. But, it's, you know, it takes some effort. It takes some, some searching of the soul. It takes some dark times to get to the light times. You've got to put the work in. Um, so, I mean, that's really what our season's about. Now, I know one of the biggest challenges always facing a, a smaller company um, in New York is, you know, publicity and promotion and actually getting, you know, the word out for a small theater where you don't have the budget to spend millions because you don't have right. a even enough seats to fill it up. You won't see our ads on the sides of buses if that's what you're asking for. <laughs> so I'm curious, with your recent NY It Award mm -hmm. win, ha have you noticed, has that made a difference in terms of your being able to get some advanced PR, uh, get some extra notice? Has that helped out in, in, a, in a tangible way for your company? I think it, I think it has. You know, I think it's one of those things that we're really going to see 
two weeks from now, when the shows are up and running and press is starting to come in and, and uh, audiences are starting to come in, I think what we're going to start to see is that our audience numbers are going to hopefully be reflective of the recognition that the NYIT award uh, gives us. I don't think it legitimizes us because I think we've always been legitimate, but I think to people who may not have heard of us before, who are checking us out for the first time, it, it, it can serve as sort of a, you know, stamp of approval, you know, a good housekeeping stamp of approval that says, the, you know, this little company you've never heard before has been doing great work for X amount of years, and you should check them out. They've been honored. They've been recognized. And I hope that that's what it does. If it doesn't, we'll just keep doing good work, and, you know, we know that, you know, it's like erosion. You just keep one drop of water every day breaks the rock, so we'll just keep going. All right. So, again, remind us, where is the, the rep playing? And Center Stage, New York, which is 48 West 21st Street, between 5th and 6th Aves. And we're open November 13th with Summer and Smoke and run our repertory, which is Summer and Smoke, Parking Lot, Lonely Heart, and Native Speech from November 13th through December 21st. And how can people get tickets? They can check out our website at www.boomerangtheater.org, and that's theater with an R-E. And uh, ticketing information is there. The rotating rep schedule is there. Uh, full cast of characters, photos, the full Megillah. You could find it there. All right. Well, Tim Erickson, I thank you so much for stopping by to chat about your company and the rep season coming up. And Thanks best so of luck. Thank you so much. On the boards. Capture Now is a new one-man play that's a coming-of-age story that's currently taking place at the 45 Bleecker Theatres, and we have the author and actor, Josh Jonas, here with us. For all you girls, uh, are you related to the Jonas Brothers? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. It's you funny. should say you are. I it's totally like a guaranteed... I totally know. am. I totally am. They learned everything <laughs> from me. Their on-stage persona, uh, everything. Everything from me. So... Uh, no, not, but uh, <laughs> but it's funny. People ask that. People ask that a lot. So um, this no, but this so it's a yeah, it's a new Jonas. But your show is about brothers. It is. It is actually <laughs> yes. It's very much about brothers um, and uh, the relationship between these two uh, brothers in high school um, who uh, sort of forge a very interesting relationship and in that they're 13 years apart. And uh, I forgot to tell you this before, but it's also very much based on music, actually. Uh, music is definitely a character in the show, and that's part of how the brothers uh, bond, I guess you'd say, although it's not a strong enough word. But they, but yeah, they do. <laughs> so. so is this autobiographical or... Um, um, it's definitely a play. So, it's, I don't, you know, I don't want to say, oh, this is my life story. There's definitely... Um, just about every part in the show I can point to and say, oh, that came from this or that came from that. So there are parts that are directly out of my life. There are other parts that I took from uh, this other family uh, that we know. Um, and I sort and but every sort of emotional through line, you, I can point to something uh, very specific and say that's that's sort of where that came from. Um, and uh, we also, this is not to plug the website, but they did ask, the uh, advertising people did ask me to, they just figured people were going to want to know where the play came from. And on the website, there is something that I wrote, which has the story sort of of how the play started or came to be. So, um, so it's not autobiographical, but it's definitely f from my life and where I'm from and stuff like that. One thing that I find interesting as a as a one man show that you you've written is that you're obviously well out of high school, 
Um, and it, it, it seems like a different choice for, you know, that kind of play that you, you basically is, in a sense, you play from 13 to 18 on on stage or in your... Yes, well, and older, because there's, yeah, okay. there's the parents, there's, uh, there's an older lady uh, who's a very sort of uh, crotchety but very lovely waitress uh, who's about 70. Uh, so the ages go from, I never thought of it this way, but I play from about 3 to 70, yeah. Which is weird. I never said it that way, but I do. Yeah. Um, so, what made you focus in on though on the high school relationship between uh, or the or the you know between um, these two brothers? You know, it, it's funny because first of all, I was telling somebody this the other day. It's really it's interesting. The show, part of the reason I think that the show works in this way and it, and it takes place in high school. I hope this makes sense. Is that in high school, you kind of felt like your life was a one person show because you were very self-centered and you felt, uh, and it's not, I mean, it's, I'm not saying, you know, I don't mean this as a down, I did, you know, it was, <laughs> it was that you're, you know, everything, the sun in the best and worst ways rose and set on you. If things were, it was all about you. I got this date, I didn't get this date, I failed this test, everything, if things were good or bad, that girl doesn't like like me, but it all, you felt like revolved around you. You were sort of the sun, everything else went around you. Um, and so it had that feeling. So I think it sort of works in that way. And that's sort of why I used high school in a sense. Um, also, it's just, I, as I can think of, it's sort of the most intense time, you know, in terms of, uh, of, your, of our experiences, whether you loved high school, you hated it. It was so intense in terms of uh, ups and downs. Every day felt like the beginning or the end of the world, depending on what was going on. Um, and so I just think it's something that we all can relate to a little bit, that intensity of that time, you know, the, the hormones pouring out and the, and the, your, our, just the, the images of the, my locker was always overflowing and it was just a very intense, intense, <laughs> and, uh, intense time. So, um, I think that's partly why high school, um, now, I know the show opened on October 22nd, and you're in an open run. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, what was the story behind actually getting this produced and getting this up on stage in New York for you? Um, that's a play in itself, really. <laughs> um, the long story short of it was that I was working on this. I wrote it actually in uh, when I was living in Los Angeles um, and, uh, um, and then moved back here because I wanted to, the hope, the dream, whatever. Uh, I just used quotes with my hands. I know people can't see that. Um, you use your thumbs in that quote, I too, do, which is I a do. weird kind of grabbing motion less than a quote. Because <laughs> I'm quoting, and I'm also grabbing the sentence I'm going to show you that I'm quoting. So it's, it's very, it's very, uh, it's the new, it's the new, um, it's the new millennium quote. I don't know if you know about that. That's how you quote in the new millennium. Um, so... Uh, so I brought it back. I brought it back here to. I did it for a night on the West Side, um, and our producer Kurt Peterson, um, who I knew from somebody who was involved trying to make this as sure as possible. Somebody who was involved in the production out in L.A. told me to get in touch with him. So I got in touch with him. He read the play. He really dug it, but was like, "I need to see you do it, obviously, because you, you could be terrible," which I could. Mm-hmm. But I'm not. So, um, so I did it for a night on the West Side, and then he really saw that there was something there, and said, "You know what it needs is a, a director who can really um, kind of take it to the next level." And he 
was he had known Larry Moss for years and sent it to Larry. Um, and Larry, who is like the uh, hardest working man in show business, uh, took so because of that, took him a little while to read it and then finally read it and said he was on board. And when Larry got on board, that's when it really started to pick up momentum. Uh, we started doing workshops of it. And then our other producer, Jane Bregere, uh, who has, I think uh, right now she's doing All My Sons and 13, so she's she came on board and, and that's when it really started moving. Um, and then we and then we workshopped it uptown at Barnard and then we moved uh, to uh, 45 Bleecker. So how long has this been in development for you? Uh, I've been back in New York for about, it's been about, uh, it's been over two years from when I got back to everybody coming on board and then, uh, and then now. So it's been a, it's been a long haul. Um, <laughs> but uh, the kind of way I always think about it is like to get five of your friends to be able to agree on, an, on a night that you can all go out to dinner, that takes months. <laughs> so to get, you know, uh, a show where everybody's on board at the same time. That's in New York where you find finding five friends go out to dinner takes months. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, for other listeners out there, they may not get that. I, I uh, okay. so when I first moved here, when I first moved here, one of my friends said, "You know, your best friends in New York you never see because they're the ones who are like okay with you breaking a date at the last moment." And I didn't get the truth of that at all until I was here. It's very, tr- it's very true. It's very true. It's very true. And then the other thing that's weird is it's like this, this city with a ton of people, and then you, the, always that one person that you've been avoiding, you bump into them <laughs> on the street, you know, in the middle of uh, Times Square. Not that I'm avoiding anybody. That didn't sound really good. I'm not avoiding anybody. Well, these two like mobster-looking guys outside the door, they're not for you? The, uh, <laughs> I, I, I was told I'm not really allowed to talk about that. Um, they were wearing wolf suits with no underwear, so I'm not really allowed to <laughs> talk about that. But no, 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 no. Um, yeah, so it's... Um, yes, what are we talking about? Yeah, so it took a long time. So it took a long time. So what's been your history as an actor um, before this or through this or whatever. Do you have you done other things as well? Yeah, I mean, I was, uh, I was going to say primarily, but really only uh, an actor. I had never written anything before, and I had no uh, delusions of writing anything before. Um, and then um, when I got to L.A., and I'd always heard people say this, and I never understood it. I thought it was sort of like writer, you know, gobbledygook. But I always heard people say, the story picked me. And I was always like, I have no idea what the hell that means. Um, and that's what happened with this. This story kind of came in my head, and I saw the beginning, and I saw the end. And it was really like, do you have the huevos? Do you have the, you know, the guts to uh, to write it? And it was the hardest and scariest thing I'd ever done because I'd never done it. And I didn't. And I partly was like, maybe I'm crazy because I'd never written this before. And I'm going to write a one-person show. It's going to be me by myself for an hour and a half. And... Uh, I've never written anything before. So it was really scary, and I, th- I was, you know, didn't... But it kind of was this... Um, yeah, I think you have those moments where you kind of feel like you're at a crossroads, and you go, I have to do this. And that's kind of what happened. So um, before this, I was just... I did a ton of theater here in the city, um, and uh, and that was it. And this was my first... I mean, I'd written a few small things, but nothing of this scope. I just used my hands again to make a very big... <laughs> Uh, wide gap. I don't know. Yes, you're very gesticulating. I do. I just people think I'm Italian because I <laughs> I, uh, I use my hands a lot, but uh, I I just am a Jew who uses my hands a lot. 
One, so. one thing I like to ask some people every once in a while, and I'm, I'm just taking suspicion here that there's maybe something in there. Of course, you know, in, in as an actor in New York or L.A., um, I'm, I'm guessing you're not quite yet full-time or haven't been. I'm, I'm kind of curious, what's the most embarrassing job oh, that you've had to take oh my God. to pay the bills in the... Right. Whether acting or or a temp job, you know, no, day job, what you know. Oh man, I've had a lot of them. <laughs> I had a job. Let's see, what did I what did I have? I had a job here once where our jo- it was this it was this company. Uh, when I lived here, it, there's this there's a company. I forget the name of it, um, but there's probably a good thing. Probably a good thing. <laughs> there's a company. Their job is to go down to like around Canal Street and bust all the fake. Um, the fake uh, vendors that sell like DKNY and Louis Vuitton and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I had a job where you had to like go around and pretend to be uh, like a buyer, and then you'd be like, you know, uh, yeah, they got the fake this there there. And, and I said it for I did it for a little while, and I was like, I just don't feel right about this. I feel really this is you know I tried to get into it and tried to pretend like I was Serpico. <laughs> and it, it didn't it didn't really do anything. So I had that, and then. Um, in L.A., the worst, and this is sort of what motivated me to write the play. In, in L.A., I, I was a food driver. There was this company called L.A. Bite, uh, which is a great name. And they just delivered food from all these different um, companies in L.A. And, and uh, I was a food delivery guy. It just it's, it's, it sucked. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to L.A. I mean, traffic there is bad enough if your job is driving around in traffic. Uh, to bring like California Pizza Kitchen up to some lady in the hills, it just is the worst job, really, uh, in in the world. Um, and uh, so I did that, um, uh, and it was when I I delivered food to a door one day, and this woman, this very beautiful Beverly Hills lady, opened the door and did that thing where she was talking on the phone, had mm-hmm. the phone like you know trapped in her ear and shoulder, and got to the door and when she opened the door was talking to her friend and went yeah hold on one second the delivery guy's here and I was just like I'm the delivery guy um and so I said we got any bounce like a wow wow no I know right seriously (laughs) I should be like that's right I am the delivery guy um but uh no yeah I know seriously um I'm here for your four o'clock um yeah no I was was, yeah there was no like spice channel or skinamax (laughs) going on at all um so Unfortunately, I just was the delivery guy. Uh, yeah, which made me go okay. On, on the flip side, what maybe was the best like day job you maintained that allowed you to pursue your oh man creative work? Uh, the best. <laughs> this is gonna sound really uh, lame, but for a while I worked uh, at Harper Collins and I was in the publicity department, and you got free books. It sounds really, it doesn't sound exciting, <laughs> but books there are literally like water. Like literally you go, oh, that's an interesting book. People go, you want it? Here, take it. So, I mean, that was kind of fun. Um, and um, I don't know if I can, this wasn't fun. This was also kind of uh, messed up. I don't know if I can, if I should, well, when I was in L.A., I drove, uh, I was, I drove strippers too. Um, when I was in LA to like bachelor parties and stuff like that, and and that was a, rough. That was, yeah, well, it it, kind of, <laughs> it sounds like oh poor you, no, but um, but um, these are not the most, uh, these are not the happiest women in the world, I have to say. So there's a lot of is this kind of weird. Uh, I did that, which actually um, paid okay, so I was able to do that, um, and. Uh, what, oh man, there's been a you know a, t- a ton. 
Um, uh, what else? I don't know. I can't. I don't remember. HarperCollins was cool. I have to say, it sounds so dorky, but I got free books. <laughs> that was kind of fun. Um, yeah. All right. So Capture Now, um, your one man show, is playing again at the Forty Five Bleaker. The theaters at Forty Five Bleaker. Yeah. And uh, it's open run. Open run, uh, Tuesdays through Saturdays at eight o'clock, and also Saturdays at three. And you said you had a website with a lot of stuff. Yeah, our website is capturenowtheplay.com. Um, and you can get your tickets there and check out that thing about where the play came from and uh, all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah. Really quick before we wrap up, where, where did the title Capture Now come from? Uh, the, the title ca- comes from, um, you kind of have to see the play, but the, but the, but the title comes from, this is, um, excuse me, I, I think I said before, um, it's the relationship between these two brothers and how the younger brother sort of gives his older brother everything that the older brother needs to sort of be a person and get through life. And that's actually one of the questions that the little brother asks his older brother is how do you capture now? Which at the time in the play, I think the older brother thinks that, oh, that's a funny, cute little question that he's asking and doesn't really give it much weight And then by the end of the play, I think he and also I think the audience realizes that that's really that's the whole play. That's really what it's about. And I I think it's it without trying to be all poetical, but uh, it's kind of what life is about in a way is how do you stay present, stay right now as opposed to being angry about the past, worrying about the future. It's all about, uh, using my hands again, I'm sorry, um, about uh, staying in the, in the moment. And I, I, so I, I think uh, it's, it's really what the play is about. All right. Well, Josh Jonas, I thank you so much for stopping by. Absolutely. And I'm counting on those free tickets to the Jonas Brothers. For- At, oh, totally. <laughs> Front row. Front row. Front row. All right. Well, have a good day and Thanks, best of luck man. with your run. Thank you very much. Top of the trades. Several Broadway musicals and stars will be featured during the annual Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which will be broadcast live on NBC TV November 27th, beginning at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. According to a Macy's spokesperson, the annual parade will boast performances from the cast of Irving Berlin's White Christmas, In the Heights, South Pacific, and The Little Mermaid. Also of interest to theater fans, the cast of the forthcoming revival of Hair will belt out Aquarius atop the New York tin toy float. Tony winner Kristen Chenoweth will sing the Christmas waltz on the Care Bears Winter Funderland float. And Tony winner Idina Menzel will offer I Stand on the M&M's on Broadway float. The parade will conclude with members of Camp Broadway, joined by Kermit the Frog, performing I Believe in Santa Claus. A group of 300 kids, aged 10 to 17, will sing the tune, which was penned by Wesley Watley and Bill Shermerhorn, Macy's creative director. The 82nd annual Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade is set for Thursday, November 27th from 9 a.m. to noon. The parade is broadcast nationally on NBC TV. Tony Award winner Leia Salonga, who is currently starring in the title role of the international tour of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella, will perform in concert in the U.S. and Canada in 2009. According to Billboard.com, the acclaimed singing actress is scheduled to offer concerts in Nevada, Washington, California, Indiana, New York, Hawaii, and more in 2009. Salonga's current tour dates are listed in the show notes section for Broadway Bullet Volume 222. 
A host of stage and screen stars will take part in a one-night-only gala to benefit the UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television. Entitled One Night Only, with a little help from our friends, the December 2nd benefit will be held at UCLA's Royce Hall. The evening, which will be hosted by Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson, will also include a presentation of You Can't Take It With You. In addition to Hanks and Wilson, the performance will also boast the talents of Annette Benning, Martin Short, and Charles Durning. Nora Ephraim directs. Showtime is 7.30 p.m. Tickets, priced only $300, tax deductible, include the performance and a post-performance reception. Call 310-201-5033 for more information. The Story of My Life, the intimate two-actor musical about the contours of a lifelong friendship, told in the context of a eulogy, seems a sure thing for Broadway in early 2009. A theater has not yet been announced, but a casting notice is seeking an understudy for the roles of quirky bookstore owner Alvin Kelby and best-selling writer Thomas Weaver, who is creatively blocked as he attempts a tribute to his friend. As in the recent Goodspeed Musical's developmental run of the show in Connecticut, Alvin will be played by Malcolm Getz and Thomas will be played by Will Chase. Tony Award winner Richard Maltby Jr. will direct. The casting notice indicates tentative Broadway dates of February 3rd as the first preview and February 19th as an opening. An official announcement has not been made by producer Chase Mishkin. Story of My Life premiered at Toronto's Canadian Stage Company in fall 2006 and has been revised and refined recently. This will mark the Broadway debut of Canadian writers Neil Bartram, Music and Lyrics, and Brian Hill, Book, who are now New Yorkers. There will be a shift in power not only in the White House, but for the 2009 Tony Awards, which will be held at Radio City Music Hall June 7, 2009. According to a representative for the Tony Awards, quote, Tony Award Productions have not renewed Liz McCann and Joey Parnes' contract. Alan Wasser Associates will act as the general manager of the 2009 Tony Awards. Ricky Kirshner and Glenn Weiss White Cherry Entertainment will continue on as the producers of the 2009 Tony telecast, end quote. Veteran producer Elizabeth Liz I. McCann had been general manager of the annual Tony Award telecast since 2001. Curtain call. Well, that wraps up volume 222 of Broadway Bullet. We're going to have a lot of great stuff for our next episode. Remember, second and fourth Thursday of every month. So that means a special Thanksgiving episode. You can feast on turkey and listen to your favorite interviews with uh, your stage personalities while doing so. I'm sure the family will be thrilled. So until then, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. All aboard! The hair's on the back of my neck. The Broadway Bullet! It's a thrilling moment. We starved, so should an audition come up? We are so ready and raring. So Jake Kowski says my name, and I'm in the can. Actually, the bar fade thing comes from my whole life. People just going to the with the audience and explore them a little bit. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc., to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. 
you'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.